Heavy is the head that wears the crown. I put in extra work that just can't be found. I took the sword out the stone, wasn't a thing. Look me in my eyes, cause I'm a king. Look me in my eyes, cause I'm a king. God made me punch in the accurate numbers. My castle won't crumble. What I tackle will fumble. I've been a leader when they ain't see it, but now my feet is up. According to me, royalty didn't end with King Tut. Crown on my head, clouds is at my legs. Big says sky is the limit. I look down on the ledge. I push the bar like I'm opening the cell. Hands in my cookie jar, you won't come out with a single nail. I need all of mine. The weight of my shoulders won't fit on a scale. What's a king to a giant? Well, Goliath fell. Even if we playing chess, dog, this king can't be checked. I make all my moves on the board. I invented my steps. Uh-huh. I'm a king, the blood of a ruler. I feel like Mansa Musa. Musa. Make your squad disappear like landing by the Bermuda. Triangle, look at it from my angle. I'm a king, the closest thing to being one of God's angels. Yeah. I'm a king. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. I put in extra work that just can't be found. I took the sword out the stone, wasn't a thing. Look me in my eyes, cause I'm a king. Look me in my eyes, cause I'm a king. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. This is the Code of Conduct with the King podcast on the Buffalo Rumblings Vidcast Network, presented by Picasso's Pizza. Treat yourself to the most flavorful pizza on game day, Picasso's. We are Buffalo Pizza, shipping local and nationwide. Order online at PicassoPizzas.net, PicassoPizza.net. I almost had it perfect, Bruce. I almost had it perfect. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, what is going on? I am excited tonight. Y'all know it's the fall. Almost, I'll be honest, I don't don't like how short the fall feels, but it's the fall, and I feel like this is the perfect time for some stew. And luckily, we have a chef joining us from Buffalo Rumblings. Everybody knows him. Everybody loves him. We all love the content and the insight. So, no introduction is necessary. What is going on, Mr. Bruce Nolan? Mr. Spence, how are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. It sounds like I'm doing a little bit better than you, but but I think we're both doing okay. You know, I, I got to be honest. Um, when this first happened to me and I, I, I ended up losing my voice, I actually thought it was a little bit of a curse. But after feeling and hearing the way my wife is reacting to it, I kind of think maybe it might be a blessing now. So I'm kind of hoping maybe the voice kind of <laughs> sticks around for a little bit longer. Hey, bow chicka wow wow. Or bow like, are we chicka. talking? <laughs> yeah, that's what it's, that's what I figured. So I'm not going to, um, we're going to get right into it because I feel like it's a jam-packed show as far as information. Typically I do more of the, you know, like the interviews, but it's more fun and, and loose. But this, I feel like um, with the information that you're bringing, I want to make sure that we have enough time to get through everything. So I'm going to start off um, prior to bringing up any graphics or anything. I want to ask you, what is stew? So QB stew is a proprietary composite um, that I created based around the concept that we become far too arrogant about our quarterback metrics. It's that simple. Um, when you're having an argument over what quarterback is better, what you usually find is that someone will take one of the metrics that we all know are intrinsically flawed and we will take one of those metrics and we will use that to say why my quarterback is better than your quarterback. But then in that same vein, later on down the line, you will then dismiss that metric and use a different metric if it no longer suits your purpose. The use of individual 
quarterback metrics is inherently slanted toward us deciding to be intellectually dishonest. Like it, it, it just, it naturally goes that way. And so the first thing that I saw that kind of gave me the idea was a lot of the analytics community has started to use EPA per play and CPOE as a composite together. And I said, let's go farther. Let's go bigger than that. And so what I did was I listed out all the metrics for quarterbacks that I knew. And I specifically lined up their positives and their negatives because every metric has something you go, well, that doesn't account for blah, 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 or it heavily weights toward blah, 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 or whatever it is. So for me, I wanted to make sure that I had a metric involved in the composite that had a strength that would cover up for the weakness of another one. So for example, one of the common things that you see is, well, metrics don't account for a really good pass that gets dropped. Well, that would be true if I wasn't using PFF grade. I'm using PFF grade, not because I think PFF grade is the best quarterback metric. I'm not, because if I did, I would just use PFF grade, but I'm not because we all know that PFF grade has serious flaws, but I'll tell you what it does have is it accounts for really good passes that are dropped by receivers. And so that has a way of balancing out the other metrics that don't have that as part of them. So that's a great example. So what I did was I took that opportunity to be able to plug in to this composite all of the metrics that I felt could balance each other out. I'm not using them because of their individual greatness. I'm using them because of how well they balance other metrics. And so because of that, if you know what these metrics do, if you know the way they operate, then you can look at this composite and it can tell you a story. You can actually get qualitative evidence from looking at the metrics. So that's the reason why I use QB Stew. It's a way for me to get away from intellectual dishonesty and it's a way for me to get away from the arrogance that is kind of intrinsic to, no, this is my metric. Well, it's your metric because it proves your point. And if it didn't prove your point, then it wouldn't be your metric anymore. And I don't want to be intellectually dishonest. I want to have all of them. Okay. So, well, with that being said, um, I, I have the graphic up. I know for those listening in podcast form, you can't see this. You might want to either go and follow Bruce on on Twitter and uh, search through his his post or or look at his media and you'll see this graphic or you can jump on YouTube, find this and, uh, and, and about the seven minute mark now and pull it up and see what we have going on here. Um, before I, before we, we jump into this, I do want to say these numbers or, or the way the stew is at this point uh, that we're looking at was prior to this last Sunday's game or was it prior to, to the last two games or just this? No, it was, it was after week eight before week nine. So the most recent set of games is not included in this. Okay, so we're missing one week. However, um, after nine weeks, after nine games, this is this is where we are. So, for Bills fans, we don't like to see or hear this, but Tua Tagovailoa is is number one. Um, it, talk to me about this, Bruce. Is this is this statistically only because he has um, the best? or, you know, the best combination of receivers right now, or, or is he actually passing the eye test on top of all these metrics that you have up here? I think he's passing the eye test, but the caveat with Tua is a little bit 
like the caveat with Marcus Mariota. And that's they both have functions of efficiency that are very high. So it's very, very important that we note that QB Stew at no point has a situation where it accounts for volume. That's really important. Volume is completely out. So what that means is that Mariota barely throws any passes. Tua has a sample size problem because he missed time. So yes, he has been this good, but he hasn't been this good for as long as Patrick Mahomes has been this good. Mm. So it's very important that QB Stu doesn't attempt to tell you who is the best. It attempts to tell you who is playing the most efficiently. And that's, that's not the same argument. That's never been the same argument. Excellence, I talked about this when I talked about the Hall of Fame in the offseason. Excellence is determined by how good you are multiplied by how long you've been doing it for. And that matters. Now, it's important. Um, Daryl in the comment section said, Tua has some of the best combo of yak receivers, too. Um, the, uh, the Miami Dolphins are actually in the bottom half of the league in yards after catch. Everyone just kind of assumes that it's short passes that they're taking for a long distance, but that's not actually true. Um, Tua in on third and long is the best quarterback in football right now on third and long. You put him in obvious passing situations where he has to drop back and throw and he has to throw past the sticks and he's still the best quarterback in football at that time. So yes, he is playing as well as it looks like he's playing. But the issue is right now, sample size for Tua. Sample size is Tua. So for everything, there's an asterisk by Tua. And the asterisk is he's got to do it for longer. The asterisk by Marcus Mariota is, yeah, he's been playing efficiently, but they're only asking him to throw 19 times a game because they don't trust him that much. So yeah, he's functioning within the offense, but he's not being asked as much to do. With Tua, it's yes, he's playing really well, but he's also missed a chunk of time. So give me another four or five games. Let's see if he's still at number one. So yes, there's a caveat, but the caveat is not, is he playing well? I I don't think there's an argument to be made that he's playing well. Like, I, I don't think you can argue against that. I really don't. He is playing well. If you say he's not playing well, I'm just, at that point, I'm just, I don't know what to tell you. Like, he is playing well. The caveat is, can he continue to play well? That's always the caveat. So for me, that's my my, my deal with Tua. Well, when you say, you know, because A, yes, I agree with you. He's playing well. And it's actually, um, it's annoying to admit that because, you know, obviously in the division, um, we don't want to see the Jets do well. We don't want to see the Patriots nor the Dolphins do well. And it seems like um, this year there's an emergence of, of all three teams in the division where they're playing better than we all anticipated. Maybe not Miami, but uh, for Miami, I think the part that's that's frustrating for a lot of Bills fans is that, yes, Tua is actually the one steering that ship. Like, he's the one actually leading it. So um, – when we when we talk about that, you say it's not about Yak or it's not about, um, you know, the receivers bailing him out, obviously. But but what is it specifically um, that you see as a jump for Tua? Because last season I, and I tried to find that and I couldn't find it. But last season he wasn't at the top of this list. Um, so no. what what is the biggest thing that you see when you watch the film on this guy? Like what changed? The biggest thing is this is a system for me. A hundred percent. The biggest thing in the system, um, you know, you went from a Chan Gailey system to a Mike McDaniel system. And that is very, very different. And I have made no 
no bones about being an unabashed Mike McDaniel fan. Um, now, I, I didn't necessarily it. know that it was going to respond this way. But imagine, if you will, um, Jimmy Garoppolo, who was more aggressive with better receivers. And that's essentially what you're getting with Tua. And everyone during the offseason, everyone's like, well, you know, can, can Tua be a championship level quarterback? I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely he can. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo went to a Super Bowl. He was in a different NFC championship game. Do we not think that Tua can be as good or not better than Jimmy Garoppolo, who I don't think is an overly impressive quarterback? He's, you know, he's, he's fine, right? But if you get that level of play or better in that system with better receivers than Jimmy Garoppolo has ever had, I listen, I love Debo Samuel and I love Brandon Ayuk, but Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell are better. And so, yes, those two things are, those things are true. Absolutely. He has the best receiver tandem, in my opinion, in the entire NFL. Uh, but it's the system. It's a hundred percent of the system and it's his acknowledgement of the system, the way he plays within the system. Um, I actually think that the fit is fantastic. Um, and I think that the jump from a Brian Flores slash Chan Gailey situation to a Mike McDaniel situation is very, very noticeable. Okay. Um, it, I guess it's, it's annoying for me because, um, like I said, at this point, the sample size isn't as great for Tua. But last season and the season prior, and I believe the season prior, this this system, Stu, has accurately predicted the MVPs. Now, obviously, we know Aaron right. Rodgers won it two years in a row. But this this metric system or a collection of metric systems that you've put together here have accurately predicted the MVP. First, I'm going to ask, why is that? And then secondly... I mean, is this is this what we're looking at? Is this telling me that if Tua continues the way he's playing at this level for the rest of the season, he'll probably be the MVP? Because I don't know if I can stomach that, Bruce. I can't take it. Um, the answer to your second question is maybe. I think the time missed, I think the fact that Tua missed so much time would kind of have a default to Patrick Mahomes in this situation. I really do. Um, but I think that as far as why Stu predicts MVPs, I think the reason that is, is because if one of these things is drastically off, you know, if you have, if you're number one in QBR and number one in passer rating and number one in NEA and number one in, D, in EPA per play and number one in DVOA and then number, you know, 28 in PFF grade, right? And that drags your stew down, then that's not just going to show up from a, um, quality, a quantitative standpoint, it's going to show up qualitatively. There are going to be people who are going to see something on film and go, that's, you know, I, the results are there, but something about the process is wrong. And that's enough doubt to creep into the mind of MVP voters. I think when MVP voters are sitting there, they're thinking about the most dominant player in football and dominance has a tendency to show up across all of this stuff, not across a few of these metrics. And I think that's the reason why Stu has been able to predict the MVP the last couple of years is because it does a good job of not siloing in on a quarterback who's good at a certain thing. It's a quarterback who is overall dominant and is really, really efficiently doing everything they need to do. And I'll give you a great example. Last year, the, the votes that didn't go to Aaron Rodgers went to Tom Brady. And remember, I mentioned to you earlier that stew is not a volume metric. It's an efficiency metric. Mm -hmm. Well, guess who had better volume than Aaron Rodgers last year? Tom Brady. The people who were voting for Tom Brady were saying, well, he had more yards. He had more touchdowns. 
I don't think they care. I don't think it's about yardage. Lots of passing leaders are not good players. Lots of people who lead the NFL in passing yardage are not, are not good players. That happens all the time. When you yeah. go very, very rarely, one of the things I always talk about when I talk about wins being a quarterback stat is we intrinsically know that passing yardage is a bad metric to evaluate quarterbacks. Like we know that. Like nobody thinks, well, these are the best quarterbacks in the NFL because they have the most passing yards. Nobody says that. But yet somehow a statistic that has even less context than passing yards, which is wins, somehow we're completely okay doing that. So for me, Cam Gracie, great, great point. Kirk Cousins always up there in yards, but never been the MVP. Exactly. Because people intrinsically understand that yardage is not a good way of measuring quarterbacks. And I would argue wins has even less context than yardage does, which is why we don't do it. So this is why it's an efficiency metric. It's an efficiency metric because I'd much rather have an efficiency metric that needs have asterisks by people's names for caveats like volume or sample size in the case of Tua and Marcus Mariota. I'd much rather have an efficiency metric that needs asterisks as opposed to a volume metric that needs all asterisks. Well, volumetric, yeah, he wrote, played for a lot of passing yards. Oh, but he wasn't very efficient. Oh, this is, oh, but they were more efficient because in this case, I only have really two asterisks for those two people that I mentioned. But in, if I switched it, if I made it a volume metric, everybody would have to have an asterisk. So mm-hmm. that's the reason why it's an efficiency metric. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's been able to help predict MVPs. Okay, well, let's get into because um, Cam Greasy actually brought up a point that I know you specifically wanted to touch on um, prior to the season. You and I got into a little fun debate on Twitter, and I'm sure you were debating with others about it. Um, but you made a comment that you feel like Kirk Cousins. Um, you know what? I don't even I don't want to misquote you here, but you you made a comment in some regards about how Kirk Cousins is either um, a better performer or a, you didn't say better quarterback, but. He, you can kind of explain how you said it, but in comparison to um, Kyler Murray and I'm like, are you kidding me, Bruce? Like I'm, I'm like throwing my phone and I'm like, what is Bruce talking about? He's embarrassing. And now you pull up this, you pull up this, uh, this dude that we have now. And sure enough, he Kirk cousins is three spots higher than Kyler Murray coming in at 17 where Murray's at 20. What the heck is, go- I mean, I'm out here in Arizona and I see it, but from your perspective, what the heck is going on with Kyler Murray and why is Kirk Cousins leading a seven and one team into Buffalo this weekend, as opposed to looking at Kyler Murray. Do- and I know my guy was out. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins has been out, came back after week six. They look a little bit better on offense, but still something's wrong. Uh, Cliff Kingsbury is the answer. I mean, yeah. I-, I could, I mean, you know, I could go on for another, uh, you know, four or five minutes about Cliff Kingsbury, if you'd like me, but the answer is just Cliff Kingsbury. Um, Kingsbury watching Kyler Murray in the Cliff Kingsbury offense versus watching Tua in Mike McDaniel's offense is a little bit like watching it's like going and auditing a college level calculus class and then going and teaching arithmetic to my seven year old niece yes they're both math but they're not the same um, Cliff Kingsbury is not, not a good offensive play caller and not a good offensive designer. I mean, if you look at some of the scenarios where the Cardinals will be on script, right? This is the stuff that was specifically designed. And some of the stuff that is on script is a disaster. 
because the script isn't good. I mean, this is not a, a play caller issue. This is a designer issue because he's not really calling the plays. He, he, he has a script at that point. So if the play calling is bad after the script, postscript, and then the designing is bad and the structuring and the layering is bad, dude, it's you. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, situational game management is terrible. Uh, getting his offense prepared for things like clock management is terrible. It, it's just Kingsbury is not a good head coach in the NFL. And there's a reason why the Arizona Cardinals fans all want him fired because I think that they know, I think that they know that Kyler Murray, you know, all the call of duty jokes aside, Kyler Murray is an exceptionally gifted quarterback, right? He throws a, he throws a really nice ball. He's got a very big arm. He's extremely mobile, right? And is he going to have that Josh Allen level work ethic? I don't think so, but very few people do at that point. But is is he good enough to be a really good quarterback in a functional system? Yes, I think the answer is yes. There's the running joke uh, amongst people who watch film a lot, and that is if you want to find DeAndre Hopkins, just look to the left side of the Cardinals formation because he's always in the same spot. Now, they obviously heard that. So the first week that DeAndre Hopkins came back, they were like, ha, I'm going to show Bruce. I'm going to show all these people. I'm going to put DeAndre Hopkins in the slot. Congratulations. That's great. Now that means you put Rondale Moore out wide, and Rondale Moore is not an, ex, not an, uh, an exterior receiver. He's not a boundary receiver. That's not who he is. So in the interest of trying to put DeAndre Hopkins in a good spot, you put Rondale Moore in a worse spot. Yeah. So you don't know how to maximize the things you've got. So for me... The answer is not put Hopkins in the slot. The answer is move him around back and forth. Let's do some bunch formations. Let's put him in motion. Let's do this stuff like this. Because now in the interest of maximizing Hopkins, you're now minimizing more because you don't know what you're doing. So to me, it's a Cliff Kingsbury problem, just period. They want him gone out here. I'm going to just tell you, every, every game I go to, everybody I talk to about it, they want him, absolutely want Cliff Kingsbury gone. And it's rough because I don't think it's going to happen for multiple reasons. But the biggest one is, you know, they just gave this guy a, a huge extension, a huge extension. And I just I can't I can't see them saying, yeah, we'll give you money over the last summer. And then uh, can you, you know, this first year. But but man, he's he's a horrible. And I, I, I I'm always very hesitant to say somebody's like good or horrible in a job that I haven't been able to do, or I, I don't feel like I'm qualified to do. And certainly as a, a head coach is a, is a tough job. And I, just, but I just feel like he's a horrible head coach, man. And it's frustrating as a, as a season ticket holder to the Arizona Cardinals to see that it's very, very frustrating, but let's talk about uh, Kirk cousins. Cause, cause like I said, you, you said prior to the season that he was yes. um, a better performer at the quarterback position in either in the systems or again, you can kind of, if you remember, you can kind of explain yeah. what you said. So uh, Nate and I, uh, Nate Geary at, from WGR and I were having a conversation on food for thought, which is our show on Buffalo rumblings on Friday evenings. And I said, Kirk cousins is good enough to win a super bowl. That's what I said. I've specifically referred to him before as super golf. Super Jared Goff is what Kirk Cousins is, right? And Kirk Cousins, if he's Super Goff, can absolutely make a Super Bowl because Jared Goff made a Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And what I said was, Kirk Cousins is a top 12 quarterback in the NFL, and you can win a Super Bowl with a quarterback of that caliber. I stand by it. And then Sneaky Joe DiBiase from WGR responded 
and listed out his top 12 quarterbacks. And I said, my exact quote was, Watson is an NA for me on the rankings because I don't even know at the time, I didn't even know if he was going to play. My exact words were, I would take Cousins over Murray right now. Just on a quarterback ranking system. He's right there with Prescott and Carr for me. That is verbatim what I said. So when it comes to Kirk Cousins, what you are seeing now is that Kirk Cousins with Kevin O'Donnell. Now, I'd love to see Kyler Murray with Kevin O'Donnell, but we spent a lot of time talking about quarterbacks and systems tonight. You see what Mike McDaniel did with Tua. You've seen now what Kevin O'Connell can help do with Kirk Cousins. And you've seen the opposite with Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury. I think what you're seeing is the continued evolution of Kirk Cousins. But also, there is a little bit of clutch involved in this because the Minnesota Vikings have won a lot of close games, a lot of close games this season. And as we talked about ad nauseum with the Buffalo Bills before the next narrative started to pop up, like earlier this year, after the first loss to the Miami Dolphins, the narrative was, wow, the Bills can't win close games. You know, now it's a new narrative because every time you lose, there's some sort of glaring flaw with a team. That's just the, the way people work. And so for me, the Minnesota Vikings have won a lot of their coin flips. I don't mean that as far as the beginning of the game coin flip. Mm-hmm. I mean that as far as the one score games have gone in their favor. The Minnesota Vikings can very, very easily be five and three right now, really easily, but they're seven and one. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're a fraud. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they're a good team, but they're not seven and one good. So I don't want to, I don't want to pat myself on the back too much about the Kirk Cousins thing. And the reason that is because if I do that, I almost feel like I'm implying wins are a quarterback stat because they're not. (laughs) Now, he is playing well, but it's important that I don't overstate how well he's playing because of the record of the team that is based significantly on winning close games, which metrics have proved, statistics have proved, long-term studies have proved winning one-score games is basically a coin flip. And you know what? It's it's funny because the Bills. I mean, this year we we've lost two games close, but but previously it used to be where it seems like every time we had one of those games that was either close or you know it was like to come down to a last second interception or fumble. It seemed like the Bills typically weren't winning those games, and now, like I said, I know we lost two. We just lost to the Jets by three. Um, we lost earlier in the season, close game. So I, I get I get it that it's not. Um, maybe the best season for me to say this but I feel like now the bills are turning that corner and I want to talk about Josh a little bit with your stew before we move on to the rest of the stuff um now Josh is at four and again this is prior to this past Sunday's game Josh is at four on your list I'm sure he's kind of fallen a little bit down on this list since Sunday with the two interceptions and um just the way that game is turned out but what is it that you're seeing from Josh that either has him kind of like fallen on this list or um you know, as Bills fans, obviously we can see no wrong in our quarterback. You know, it's like we he's 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 Thor with a football. But I don't understand um, what I've been seeing the last two games or maybe last game and a half. So if you can kind of get into what you're seeing, that's making him fall a little bit down this list. And even at this point, prior to the, the 10th game, why he wasn't, you know, where every Bills fan probably thought he would be at the top of the list. 
I think the thing that immediately pops to mind when you look at this is that his CPOE is 18, which is dragging down the stew. For those of you who are concerned about this, I would direct you to the previous couple years of stew, which is a phenomenon that we've seen as far as the CPOE being lower. We have seen this phenomenon with Patrick Mahomes frequently since stew has been around, where all of the metrics are high, CPOE is low. Now, what you can know about this, remember I mentioned earlier that if you know what these metrics do, you can almost create a story, you can create a narrative, you can create qualitative benefit from the quantitative figures. You can look at the situation and you can know why the numbers look the way they do. So one of those examples is this, the CPOE. CPOE is completion percentage over expected. It is how much better the quarterback is at completing a pass relative to the expected level of completion when he lets go of the ball. So if you are throwing to receivers who are open, that completion percentage over expectation is going to go way down because the level, it's almost like a degree of difficulty metric. It's a degree of difficulty on the throw metric. So if you are throwing the ball to receivers who are checked down, that's a high, com high completion percentage. I mean, if you check the ball down to a tight end who is staring at you seven yards away in zone coverage and there's a big gap, they, what, 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 85, 90% completion? So if you get that and you complete it, that's 10% above completion percentage because you threw it, it was completed, that's 100%. But the completion expectation was 90 at that point. So you didn't really gain a lot. But if you're making tight window throws consistently down the field, if you're making those types of throws, then that's going to really, really, really jump it up. Now, a lot of this is how much help am I getting from my receivers in contested catch situations? So those kind of things, we can kind of tell a story. And if you look at the Gabe Davis situation from last week, you know, Gabe Davis wasn't really helping out Josh Allen very much, new, new. but he was helping him out a lot during the Pittsburgh Steelers game. So you see these things happen. You go, okay, now I think I understand. Like, I just think I understand what the metrics are telling me. And so CPOE is really a degree of difficulty stat. So if you're doing really well, but you're not completing really difficult throws, then that's going to penalize you. And that's essentially what's happening when it comes to um, Josh Allen, which is hilarious because that's the same knock that Bills fans had on Patrick Mahomes for years. <laughs> oh, we'll take Tyreek Hill away from him. Let's see how he does. Well, the answer is he's doing really well. And all of a sudden his CPOE went really high up. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a uh, coincidence that now all of a sudden Patrick Mahomes no longer has this they no longer have this scenario. Patrick Mahomes for a long time was, you know, passer rating three, NEA two, EPOA, you know, EPA per play one, DVOA two, PFF grade two, and it was CPOE 21. You know what I mean? That's the way it looked for Patrick Mahomes. It doesn't look like that anymore because he doesn't have Tyreek Hill. And so that was the argument that a lot of Buffalo Bills fans made was, well, let's see what happens when he's not thrown to a wide open Tyreek Hill anymore. And I, now, Irene, irony of ironies, Josh Allen is in the same phenomenon. Yeah. You know, and I'm concerned and I didn't even have this as a question, but since you brought it up, you brought up Gabe and you brought up just how the offense goes, because now we pretty much try to stretch the field. It seems like all game. Um, 
What is happening, um, you know, coming into the season, obviously after the last time we saw Gabriel Davis prior to the season started, we saw him with a record-setting game and, you know, down in Arrowhead. And it just seemed like, you know, okay, we finally have, like, we have a tandem. Like, it's not just Diggs, but we got Davis. And I know we missed, like, I know we got rid of uh, Beasley and, and Sanders retired. So, you know, I, I get it. But I'm just not seeing the dominance after Diggs that we kind of assumed that we would see with this offense. And I, I personally don't think it's play calling. I know some, some bills fans now are being critical of uh, Ken Dorsey. I personally think Ken Dorsey is doing an amazing job. I think I've seen a bunch of drops. That's me personally, but from your perspective, um, looking at these numbers now, you see, you know, certain things, like you mentioned the CPOE dragging Josh's stats that or his ranking down. What is it that you're seeing as far as not getting the help from his receivers? I would say after Diggs, and maybe Diggs is a part of that too. No, Diggs has been every bit as good as we think that he has been. Um, Diggs is, I mean, I, I, I hate to go huge, super slang because when you're as big of a nerd as I am, you don't get away with using some of the slang without it just coming off just tremendously nerdy. People are like, oh, Bruce, you just need to stop. Like, <laughs> you're, you're not cool. Stop pretending to be cool. Stop even mentioning trying to be cool. But Stefan Diggs is him. Like, that, he is every bit he as good. Him as we think he is. I think one of the things that consistently flies under the radar is that Jamison Crowder getting hurt, I think matters. Because stylistically, okay, so let, let's ignore all the Cole Beasley um, off the field stuff for a quick second. On the field, who is Cole Beasley for this team? Uh, he was that slot, kind of always open third down i would yeah. say you know 7 to 12 yard guy right. who's the, who who is the who's who's a who's a go get you a bucket guy on this team when you need a bucket you go to this guy yeah it nope. was supposed to be isaiah mckenzie it but... was supposed to be isaiah mckenzie or jameson crowder and it hasn't been and gabriel davis is gabriel davis and that that's fine but that's not who he is gabriel mm-hmm. davis is a big play receiver down the field but that is not filled. That role is not filled. So one of the things I mentioned on Twitter back in June is I said, I don't think that this wide receiver room is better on paper than it was in 2021. Because what you have is you have Beasley out, you have Sanders out, you have Crowder in, you have Shakir in. That, that's, the, that's the talent on paper. And I got lambasted for it. How dare you, Bruce? Mm-hmm. Gabriel Davis is going to take the next step. He's going to be 1B. I'm not going to dunk on people right now because that's mean-spirited after a loss. Right, right. But the fact of the matter is, Emmanuel Sanders and Cole Beasley were both reliable players you could count on who knew what they were doing. And you replaced them with a rookie fifth round pick in Khalil Shakir and who else? Well, a lot of, I'm seeing a couple comments now saying that they, they figured that Knox would have been more involved and Knox would have yes. kind of took over that, that Beasley role. I just, um, I mean, personally, I always, I like Knox a ton, but I do not see Knox um, being the same type of weapon at tight end. Like we see some of the bigger, I guess more popular names at tight end. I, I don't see him ever being a, a Travis Kelsey. I don't so ever see him being, and that's this just is really important. And I'm so glad you brought this up 
Because if I have a problem with Ken Dorsey, and I don't have much of a problem with Ken Dorsey, but if I do, it is that. If you don't see, it, let's assume for a second that the, the organization agrees with you, Spence, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't see Dawson Knox as being that level of tight end. Why did you pay him like that? Why did you make him a top six paid tight end? Because what we all saw was we saw an organization who put a lot of money into a tight end and then doesn't make him the primary read on the vast majority of plays. Mm -hmm. So if you're not going to, that's fine. But why did you give him that money? It's a little bit like the David Njoku situation. So when the Cleveland Browns signed David Njoku, everyone looked at David Njoku's stat line and went, what? Really? $14 million for that? Right? Yeah. But here this season, what you've seen is they, they've made David Njoku a significant part of their passing attack. They paid him that way because Austin Hooper was no longer around, and they said, this is going to be a number two option in our passing attack. And it has been. It's been Amari Cooper, David Njoku. And I thought when the Buffalo Bills paid Dawson Knox that it was going to be Stephon Diggs, Dawson Knox in a very similar way to Amari Cooper, David Njoku. As Cam Greasy says in the comments right now, funny Knox reminds me a lot of Njoku. I agree. They're both freakishly freak athletes who are converted from other places to be tight ends. So if I have a problem right now with Ken Dorsey, it is Knox usage. Now, earlier in the season, let's make sure we qualify this. Earlier in the season, Knox is coming off an injury and it takes him a while to get back. But the last couple of games, he has ostensibly been full go. So why? So I have not gone back and watched all of Dawson Knox. I have not. So I am not going to sit here and say to you, I know what the issue is with Dawson Knox because that would be intellectually dishonest because I spent a lot of my last week looking at run defense and looking at stuff like that. And I, I just flat out can't look at everybody at once. I just can't. So sometimes I have to say things like, I don't know. And the answer is, I don't know with Dawson Knox, but it's something I'm keeping an eye on moving forward. Yeah, I hear you. And and my man RJ in the comments says, again, it may be a combination of the nagging, nagging injuries, uh, the need to keep him into block, thus running less routes, and the depth of his brother is a very, very real thing that is tough mentally for anyone. And I agree. I, I get that there are other factors outside of literally just uh, catching the ball and running some routes. Um, I guess I guess my thing with that, and and I, I obviously I try to be very careful when talking about uh, mental health or talking about emotional well-being and all of those things. I had a really rough year myself, so I, I absolutely can relate and or not even just not even from a perspective of saying that I can relate. Um, I try to be careful when speaking about those type of things. When we're talking about being in the game, I think I'm t- I'm not even talking about him because he to me, I haven't seen him really uh, make a ton of mistakes. My problem is that I don't see him being used the same way that those other guys are. So that's what I mean when I, I don't think that we'll ever see that from him in Buffalo, which to everybody's point, he's making too much money not to be used that way. So um, I don't know. Cam Greasy says, uh, give me some of that play action within the five and find Knox in the end zone. 
there's several things that I feel like could be done with a talent like him and David and Joku. It's not happening. Uh, but let's move on. Uh, I got a couple more things that I want to get to before we get out of here. Um, I want you to be able to get some tea prior to recording <laughs> the Bruce exclusive for this week. So um, back to not back to Stu, but back to Josh Allen. Um, Coach McDermott did a presser yesterday. Let's address the elephant in the, in the room so we can kind of move on because there are people still asking about it. Um, he, when he was asked about Josh Allen, Josh Allen's injury, this is what he said. Yeah. You know, the one thing I, the one definite thing I can tell you is we all know Josh and how competitive he is and he loves to compete, loves to be out there with his teammates. Um, so, you know, I would never count him out, uh, but that is a, that is a, that's the one thing I do know about him is, is that right now the, the medical piece uh, we're still evaluating it. I'll know more again for myself, even tomorrow morning, a little bit more. And then I'll, I'll next talk to you guys on Wednesday and I'll update you that. Thank you, Sean. So, um, Bruce, from your perspective, um, I know we're waiting to hear some more tomorrow from Coach McDermott. Uh, so this is this is live Tuesday night. If you're listening to this as a podcast and it's today that Coach McDermott will update us again with Josh Allen's injury. Um, what, what are your thoughts? And, you know, just overall, how do you feel? Do you think this is one that I know there's a lot of rumors? There's a bunch of just a bunch of everything going on right now. What, what are your thoughts as far as this injury? Uh, it feels to me like. Um the way that the bills are approaching the information around it um, with Josh Allen's uh, normal conversation with Kyle Brandt being pushed back, for example, when things like that happen, I think to myself, okay, they're, they're just, they're trying to control the flow of information. They don't want him to be asked about it before Wednesday when it comes around. Obviously I'm concerned, like everybody's concerned about it. Um, but I, I just don't know enough to speculate. You know, it's one of those scenarios where if I had um, more information about the way that his elbow was injured and the way that the body mechanics function when it comes to those kind of things, then I would be like, okay, um, this is what I feel. But it's one of those things where I'm just, I'm throwing my hands up in the air and I'm going, well, um, I don't even know enough to say anything. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm just, it, it, I'm literally sitting there. My wife, uh, texted me this morning and she said, what do you think about Josh Allen's elbow injury? And I said, I don't know what to think. I literally have nothing. I don't know. It would be like asking me, I'm trying to come up with a good thing. Um, I don't speak Mandarin. There you go. FBI. Here we are. I do not speak Mandarin. Okay. It would be a little bit asking me about the character function of Mandarin, right? And saying, okay, what do you think about these two characters, the way that they're drawn? I'm like, listen, I don't have any frame of reference. I don't know what they're supposed to look like, Mm -hmm. right? I know like five Mandarin characters, right? I don't speak or write Mandarin. So for me, you ask me, Bruce, what do you think about these, these Mandarin characters? You know, how do you feel about them? Are they, are they, are they well drawn? I'll be like, I don't know. I don't know what they're supposed to look like. And that's the way I feel about the Josh Allen injury. I'm just sitting around here twiddling my thumbs. And I'm like, well, um, I guess I'll just wait. (laughs) It's a complete complete non-answer. But the truth is that any literally anything I gave you would be literally rampant speculation on my part. Because I don't know anything about anything. Yes, have I heard the same rumors that everyone else has heard? Yes, I have. But I don't know anything. 
Yeah. And that's kind of what I was uh, alluding to. And I joked earlier on Twitter and I'm just like, yeah, uh, I spoke to my barber from when I was in high school and he knows Josh Allen's father's friend from where they play golf in California, who said they talked to Josh's <laughs> brother's friend at a market. So Josh is going to be out six weeks. Just believe me, bro. And it's like, you know, some people took offense to that because some people are kind of, you know, out there saying that they know what it is. Um, I will caution everybody. The Buffalo Bills, they do not leak information. So if you hear something, A, it's because they wanted it out there. And then B, it's going to be from somebody who the team is communicating with. It's not going to be from a guy that lives, you know, down the block and around the corner from Josh Allen's cousin or his girlfriend's best friend from high school. That's not where we're going to hear this type of news. So, right. so please, please just caution what you believe, who you believe. And over here at Buffalo Rumblings, we try to make sure that, you know, a, we give you good content, but we also give you accurate content. So, so please, you know, don't fall for all the, the hoopla. Um, did you have anything else to that before I moved on? I just want no, to address that. No, by all means, let's go. Okay. So one of the, the other things I wanted to address, um, I did want your, your opinion on coaching. Uh, for the season I think McDermott obviously we're six and two going into this this next game so in a sense like you can't I, I don't think most times you can really say anything bad it's like if you would have told me in July hey going into the Vikings game you're going to be six and two you're going to be first in the division and first in the conference I think most people would have taken it even though uh, losing to your division opponents being 0-2 in the division sucks I think most people would have been like hell yeah sign me up for six and two going into the Vikings game um, but there are moments that I feel like McDermott might not do the best at, at certain calls or certain things that not necessarily cause, but just certain decisions in game. Um, before I play this clip, what what are your thoughts so far at this point of the season on McDermott and on the, the coordinators and everything that's going on? I feel good about it. Uh, I made a comment earlier about Ken Dorsey. And I think one of the main things I'd like to see from Ken Dorsey moving forward is I'd like to see um, plays drawn up with the specific idea that you're going to get knocks the ball. And the second thing is the Buffalo Bills in the red zone have not been good. And it's right. really, really important. It's really important that we, we talk about red zone offense being a coaching factor. It really is. And so I'm completely okay coming at Ken Dorsey about the Buffalo Bills red zone offense. Completely okay with it because so much of success in the red zone is about coaching. One of the things you constantly hear about the Kansas City Chiefs is how they go into their bag, like absolutely into their bag in the red zone. In fact, sometimes a little bit too far into their bag in the red zone. Andy Reid has been accused of being a little too cute sometimes in the red zone. But the point is he almost has a completely different playbook for the red zone because the spacing rules are completely different in the red zone. The things that work between the 20s do not work in the red zone because there's not enough spacing. You almost need to have a different playbook for the red zone. And so there's two things that I would be very critical of when it comes to Ken Dorsey. The first one is designing plays for Dawson Knox. And the second one is plays in the red zone. So that's my main coaching criticism. As far as Sean McDermott goes, uh, you know, aggressiveness has been on point. Game management has been on point. Clock management has been on point. As far as Leslie Frazier goes, I refuse to listen to one more person say, hmm. stop, run stop running nickel. I, I, I literally just can't. I just can't. Because if you go back and if you go back and watch the Packers game and then go back and watch the Jets game, you think that the Packers ran for a lot of yards 
and then the Jets ran for a lot of yards. So it's the same. And it's not the same. Just because the results were similar do not mean the method of acquiring those results was similar. It's one of the things we're going to talk about in the Bruce exclusive is just because the outcome was the same, or in this case, similar, does not mean the method by acquiring that. The Bills literally did not care that the Packers were running the ball. They didn't even try. They had six people in the box the entire game. They were like, that's fine. You're, I mean, I'm more than happy to let you run off the clock. That last drive for the New York Jets, there were seven, eight people in the box. They had run blitzes. They were trying to stop the Jets, and it wasn't working. And it wasn't because Taron Johnson was on the field. Stop saying it was because Taron Johnson was on the field. <laughs> Would you rather have Taron Johnson or Tyrell Dodson? The answer is Taron Johnson. He's a beast. He is an absolute beast and monster. So I'm with you when you say uh, you're done listening to people saying to switch that up. Like that's our defense. That's who we are, and we're great at it. We're not just good at it; we're great at it. But but out. So let's because I don't want to stick on coaching too much. Because like I said, a six and two is not much to complain about. But there's one thing I I personally feel like I can complain about. Once your opinion on it, quick, and then um, I have a couple questions um, from Twitter earlier. And uh, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about the defensive backfield. Then we'll get on out of here. Um, let, let's let's run this clip. Hey, Sean, did you give any thought to um, challenging the Tremaine Edmonds? What looked like it was an interception uh, that they called uh, a reception by the Jets. I did. Yeah, we gave it. We were talking about that, and uh, it looked to me like he had it briefly, and then then you know then the uh, the receiver, the tight end, eighty seven then grabbed it along with with Tremaine and then they both went into the scrum and mm-hmm. from there on from my vantage point I lost you know they were in a pile and, and lost track of it but the official next to me when I asked I said can I challenge that and he said no that's simultaneous that's simultaneous action right mm-hmm. so they're both they both had it they're both you know and uh, and he said no it would not it would not be a good challenge there so um, anyway that's uh you know, we didn't have a good re- replay of it, a timely re- replay either, and they were re- they were uh, going fast. And and so when I got word from from the uh, sideline official there on that, that's why I decided not to challenge. Thanks. Okay, so so real quick, because this is this has been my only critique of Sean McDermott at, at, personally the last couple of seasons is I feel like um, decision making when it comes down to like, hey, we're going to challenge this, or no, we're not going to challenge this, or or the right time to challenge or, you know, like just when to go for it. Cause I also feel like sometimes the decision to go for it. Um, I understand the analytics and I understand all that stuff, but sometimes it's like, look, take the damn points. You know, it's like the, we haven't been doing well in the red zone, which I think every, you mentioned it earlier, everybody knows. So it's like, sometimes it's like, okay, let's, let's take the positives here. But this Sunday specifically um, that play with Tremaine Edmonds, first it was bad advice from the referee. Um, but then secondly, I mean, is it just me or am I am, am I wrong with here? I, I feel like that was a play that should have been reviewed. I feel like Tremaine Edmonds came down with that interception. And I feel like not, that's not the play that lost us the game because it should have never been to the point where it was if you're going to win that game. But but it was a huge call. It was a huge call. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts about what coach just said there? And then, um, you know, like I said, what how do you how do you look at that as far as decision making for him throughout the year with those couple points that I made? I see this particular play differently than you do. Um, It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like a fumble recovery in the sense that what is the term that they always use when it comes to fumble recovery? Clear recovery. That's what they use, right? Clear recovery. And 
when I look at that, is there a clear recovery as a, for Edmonds as opposed to simultaneous possession? Because obviously they know that any simultaneous possession is going to go in the favor of the offense. We know that. So they need to see clear and obvious information that there was a clear recovery from Edmonds. Now, I know it's not exactly the same because it's not a fumble recovery, but that's essentially the way that they look at this because ties go to the offense. And so if they tell the coach, hey, you know, I mean, you can challenge it if you want, but I don't think so. It's usually because they know that the logistics of the way that the play is reviewed do not go in their favor. It's a little bit like reviewing a spot. Reviewing a spot is extremely difficult to get right because you need very, very, very clear evidence. And most of the time, that stuff is tough. It's Mm -hmm. really tough. Uh, You know, I don't know if you've ever seen someone trying to challenge a a fumble recovery, but that's really, really, really tough. And so if Edmonds had it first, which I think we could agree he did have it first, but that's not really what matters here. What matters is when he goes to the ground as part of his catch, which essentially he's doing, when he gets there, is there simultaneous possession? And if they say, yeah, I think there's simultaneous possession, you have to prove that there wasn't simultaneous possession. And if you have two hands on the ball as an offensive player, they're going to they're gonna rule simultaneous possession. So do I think it's lame? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's lame. Do I think it was fine in the sense that he didn't challenge it sure yeah i'm fine with that okay because for me it was just like i said i i feel like it was a clear catch and i feel like i guess when you're catching the ball i look at it differently so like he caught the ball and then you go down if a knee elbow or something hits the ground then i assume that he should be down by contact not down by contact after we see who wrestles the ball out in that now fumble i get it that's different at the bottom of the but i feel like in that situation it should be the rules of a catch but um yeah, it's all good. Moving on. I mean, it it, it happened and, and we're done. So, you know, I uh, got a couple questions for you on Twitter this morning. I mean, you text me specifically that you wanted to get to one um, really quickly prior to doing that. Steve did have a question, and I know you answered this earlier, but uh, Las Vegas just cut Abrams. Uh, should the Bills pick him up off waivers? No. Yeah, I, he's not good. Jonathan Abrams is bad. <laughs> yeah. um, and one, one of the things that I've, I, I'm hearing a lot on Twitter today is we're, we're doing the AJ Klein thing with Jaquan Johnson and Jaquan Johnson did not play well, right? He was one of the main reasons why the New York jets ran the ball as effectively as they did. So that's not in question, but remember the AJ Klein weeks, the weeks when AJ Klein played, and the constant refrain was, well, it, it, it can't get worse. It, it, it can't get worse. Spence. It can't get worse than AJ. No, no, it absolutely can get worse. You can have a player who's worse, who also doesn't know the system. You know, uh, Jaquan Johnson is not a high-level player. In fact, one of the things that I constantly talked about when I came to Jaquan Johnson was you don't want him taking meaningful snaps for you because he's a really, really bad athlete relative to the rest of the safeties in the NFL. And that was always his issue. Coming out of college, it was so much fun to watch Jaquan Johnson at Miami. So much fun. And you constantly say to yourself, man, if this guy was two and a half inches taller and faster, he'd be a first-round pick. Because the tape was so good, but he's just not an elite level NFL athlete. And he's not even a good NFL athlete. He's not even an average NFL athlete for the safety position. 
he is a markedly below average athlete relative to the safety position. And so you don't want him playing meaningful snaps. Those types of players are the players who you get for special teams, right? But you're down two safeties. There, there is no scenario where you can take a position group, lose your top two players at it, and be thrilled with the next guy up. Not a single one. Just walk me through this for a second, okay? If you said, get rid of Diggs, get rid of Gabriel Davis, your number one receiver is now Isaiah McKenzie. Hmm. Are you going to be happy with that? Me? Yeah. No, I'm not happy that he's three or yeah. four. Yeah. Is there is there at an, an, any position group, literally any position group, where you can lose your top two guys and be thrilled about your third guy? No. No. No team is that good. So I'm not saying Jaquan Johnson's awesome. In fact, I've never said Jaquan Johnson was awesome. He's fun to watch because he tries really hard and he's got great instincts, right? But but that's just not the way this works. You yeah. can't look at your third string safety. Which, mind, you, mind you, this is important. Jaquan Johnson is the fourth string safety. Remember, when Poyer was on the field, who was the other guy? It was DeMar Hamlin. Mm-hmm. Jaquan Johnson is the fourth string safety, guys. You can't look at him and ex- expect Jordan Poyer production. Expect Micah Hyde. You can't even expect DeMar Hamlin production. Quick side note, DeMar Hamlin, without hyperbole, has been one of the best run defending safeties in the football this year. I'm not that I'm not being hyperbolic. Like he's top 10 in like stop percentage and average depth of tackle. And ever, like literally he's been fantastic. So when I look at this scenario, I'm not saying Jaquan Johnson is good. I'm mm-hmm. saying that you shouldn't expect him to be really good because nobody's fourth string safety is, is good. And on top of that, I mean, it's a it's a long it's a long and I don't mean this as a diss to Jaquan or DeMar, anyone. When when you're talking, when you're used to watching all pro talent, it's it's going to be tough, you know, to to expect the same level of play out of their backups because these guys are all pro. There's literally not another 30 in the league that play on the same level. That's why they were all pro. So um, it's just going to be tough. So, okay, real quick, we got to get on out of here. this question this morning from my man Brendan O'Brien want to know yesterday uh you and I actually I think you kind of talked about this already uh but you said playing nickel wasn't the defensive issue but the personnel was if personnel was potentially having issues isn't it a good idea to try to try a different scheme to help so really important to note and this has caught up a couple times I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what nickel is nickel is just the personnel grouping that's it it has nothing to do with the play calls and it has nothing to do with the alignment. It is just the personnel grouping. It's like 11 versus 12 personnel on offense. The only difference is the second tight end versus the third receiver. That's it. It has nothing to do with formation, nothing to do with anything else. So if I go to nickel, the only difference between base and nickel is I took Taron Johnson off the field and I put Tyrell Dodson on the field. That's it. So there is no scheme change that you were going to make that was going to make up for the fact that you have Jaquan Johnson and Terrell Bernard on the field because they were still going to be on the field no matter what no matter what nickel personnel or base personnel you were running those players those two players were still going to be on the field so now you can bring people into the box which is what they did you can try run blitzing which is what they did 
it's it's not a scheme issue. So we, what we say is we say things like nickel, and we intrinsically think that that means we're having light boxes, and that's not true. You can have nickel with seven people in the box. You can have nickel with eight people in the box. That's not what that means. So we need to do this thing where we need to understand that nickel and dime and base, these are personnel groupings. That's it. They are not play calls. It's not even really scheme. It's just personnel grouping. It's not a play call. It None of those things. It's just bodies. That's it. And bodies. the reason why sorry. bodies, sorry. as you were say, saying, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's catching bodies is what it is. And so because of that, it's just making a decision on Taron Johnson versus Tyrell Dotson. And the reason why you're in nickel 99% of the time is because having Taron Johnson over Tyrell Dotson is the right call 99% of the time, no matter what you're doing. Taron Johnson is arguably the best run defending nickel corner in football and has come a tremendous way. Like, you know, it's what makes the scheme work. That's why it makes me so frustrated. It makes me so frustrated because the Buffalo Bills have had the number one defense in football multiple times over the last couple of years. It's always been a top five defense over the last couple of years. The thing that makes it go is Taron Johnson. Mm-hmm. He's the reason you can stay in nickel. So now you're taking the reason why you can do the things you're doing and you're saying, no, I don't want to do the thing that gives me the upper hand over the rest of the NFL because they don't have Taron Johnson. You want to handicap the Bills on purpose because you don't understand what nickel is. And I, I just, we, we just, we need to get past it. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have it there. Bruce Nolan, Mr. Bruce exclusive himself. I, this was one of those episodes where I feel like, you know, I had two hours to go. So maybe we have to, you know, I'll give it a couple of weeks and see if your schedule allows you to do, um, you know, a part two to this. I just, I just always enjoy talking to you and, you know, um, We'll have to figure that out. So so talk to Mrs. Nolan and let me know when you'll be able to do it again. And, and let's do a part two for this and um, kind of because I still I didn't get to talk about Hayden Poyer. I didn't get to talk about um, Trey White coming back. I didn't get to talk about Tremaine having the season of his life right now. So there's a lot of things that I do want to talk to you about. So um, let's let's figure that out. But before we get on out of here, why don't you let everybody know what you got coming up this week as far as the Bruce exclusive? And if you got any good articles or anything that you want people to be in tune with. Well, first off, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you having me and thank you for your patience, uh, for yours and also the people in the comments, uh, with my voice. Um, it was very important. I, you know, Spence, for those of you who don't know, Spence uh, texted me, uh, before the show this morning and he was like, Hey, you know, you know, we don't have to do this. You know, if, if your voice is not recovered, I said, you know, come hell or high water, we're going to do this. Right. Because I, um, I have not always been able to do guest spots very often because I'm a really busy guy and I really wanted to make sure we did this and I would love to talk about Stu. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your patience uh, with my um, vocal handicap this evening. Um, so hopefully the next time we talk, it'll sound a little different. I, I do not anticipate that. I do not anticipate that my voice will be better for the Bruce exclusive. So I have a feeling that when you pull up your Buffalo rumblings podcast feed on Thursday mornings, which is when Bruce exclusive drops, I will probably sound like this and I will make some sort of crack about the bell Atlantic yellow pages or about smooth jazz or (laughs) something like that. 
And, you know, we, oh, yeah. yeah At keep some point, it's a quiet storm. Yeah, quiet we'll, storm. We'll, we'll, we'll do something like that. So um, thank you so much. Uh, for everybody in the comments, all the people who are uh, listening, all the people who are watching live, the people who have uh, you know tweeted at me about the show tonight, you know, it just means a lot to me. Um, I have been very, very ill um, for a while, and um, I've been really stressed for a long time. And I just the, – the support that I get – from this community is just just staggering it really is i i just i'm just completely blown away by it it is just fascinating to me it's it's just it's hard to wrap my head around sometimes so i just want to make sure i say thank you not to you not just you for having me but for the people who are who are doing this stuff yeah Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you catch my man Bruce this week, this Thursday. Uh, and then uh, Buff Hub wants you to make sure you tune in Friday for the over-under prediction on Buff Hub. I do actually have a couple quick announcements as well. Uh, I don't know if you all caught it last week, but the three-man rush with the big game, the big man, the big Jerry-O, that is awesome with Jerry, Colt, and Sarah. That is, it, they, they cover college, they cover some UB stuff, some Syracuse stuff, and then obviously the playoff team. So, Please make sure you you check that out. They go live Thursdays. Thursdays at I believe it was Sarah. Correct me in the comments if you're here. 8 p.m. I believe, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right after uh, Colts show. So please make sure you join us for that. And guess what? I figured, why not do it? Last year, Joe Miller headed up Time to Shine, and I felt like it was a good show where we were able to get fan reactions and and the way you guys felt and ladies how you felt. We're bringing that back, except. I got a new host. My man Thomas DeLaus is going to be joining us on the Buffalo Rumblings Vidcast Network. This is not going to be released as a pod, but it's coming back, and we're going to start this Sunday. It's going to be immediately following the game. Give it 10, maybe 5, 10 minutes, but immediately following the game, my man Thomas is going to be in the building. We're going to be getting... We're going to share the link so you can pop in and you can talk about how you feel. You can tell us what you're upset about. You can tell us what you're happy about. And then that next night, Thomas is also going to be moving his Buffalo late night show over to the Buffalo Rumblings Vidcast Network, and we're going to get a pop, and it's going to be a good time. So please tune in to my guy, Thomas. It's going to be a good time. And, uh, hey, yeah, I know how I do it over here, Buffalo Rumblings. Y'all love each other. Take care of each other and live in peace. And as always, stay positive. Test negative. Go Bills. Code of conduct.